Hello from the newsroom of the Financial Times in London. I'm Suzanne Blumpson and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the global news stories that matter. Vladimir Putin, Russia's president, criticised Western liberalism and defended Russia's role in Syria and Venezuela in an exclusive interview with the FT on the eve of the G20 summit at the weekend. Lionel Barber, FT editor, and Henry Foy, Moscow bureau chief, offer their impressions of the interview in conversation with Katie Martin. Отрыв. Отрыв элит руководящих от, от народа. Есть, знаете, вот эта современная так называемая либеральная идея, да? Она, по-моему, себя просто изжила окончательно. По некоторым ее элементам просто наши западные партнеры признали, что некоторые ее элементы просто не so we just heard a clip of the Russian president saying that the Western liberal elites had broken away from the people and that the so-called liberal idea had outlived its purpose. Lionel and Henry, that's obviously the standout line from this interview with Vladimir Putin. It must have been quite an experience. Did that comment from him immediately stand out to you as your main point? It came towards the end of the interview, well past the hour. We were well past midnight. And I asked... Mr. Putin, whether he thought that Russia was immune to the same anti-establishment movements that we've seen throughout Europe, indeed in the Arab world. And this generated a kind of counterpunch, which was him saying that liberalism was dead as an ideological force. And I then knew we had a world scoop. What do you think was his audience here? Who was he really pointing that comment at? Was it at the Russian audience? Was it at an international Russian or, you know, US, British even? I think he was appealing to both audiences at home where he can play the Russian nationalist. Remember that his favourite figure in history is Peter the Great, even though he's not a great reformer himself at home. But he was also aimed fairly and squarely at an international audience, especially Europe. And he's really aligning himself with these anti-establishment populist forces, which you've seen with Marine Le Pen in France and Matteo Salvini in Italy, specifically on the matters of immigration. So he's playing on that. I mean, Henry, how much of a departure was this for the president in terms of comments that he's made domestically in the past? Well, I think nothing that he said would be massively surprising to a lot of Russia watchers here, but he'd never said it all in one go before. And certainly Lyle and I felt very clearly that this was coming from the heart. It was unscripted. This was something he'd been provoked into saying. And it was really the first time that he, as Lionel said, aligned himself with these movements and made it quite clear that he thought that what they were doing was in the interest of the majority of people. Of course, we have to remember some of these parties in Europe have been suspected of receiving funding from Russia. That's something that the Kremlin's always denied, but it was really quite striking how much of the language Mr. Putin used was so similar to those used by some of the leaders of these parties in Europe and indeed Mr. Trump in the US. So, Lionel, Mr. Putin's comments that Western liberalism had outlived its purpose brought a swift reaction from some politicians in the EU and elsewhere and also from our readers. And we published a rebuttal, if you like, on our editorial pages. How would you sum up the reaction to the president's remarks? Encouraging. (laughs) Because there's been a sense after Brexit, after the election of Donald Trump, that liberalism has been very much on the defensive. And I think one or two voices, particularly in Britain, said very well that 
Mr Putin's definition of liberalism was actually extremely selective. So he was equating liberalism with open borders, being overly generous, favouring people of sexual diversity and lax on crime. Whereas in fact, liberalism, of course, is about the rule of law. It's about free speech. It's about a free press. Things that, of course, do not exist in totality in Russia. So I think that it was important, and I felt that that was going to be the weight of the story, why it would resonate, and it would produce a reaction. On a slightly more granular issue, his comments about the Skripa affair, the poisoning of the former spy in Salisbury, and the suggestion that the UK might be ready to restore ties with Russia. Do you get the sense it's too soon, or do you think he's genuinely receptive to restoring ties with the UK? Well, I think he would like to restore ties with the UK, and he dangled the prospect of business deals and more. But it's clear that it's too soon for the UK because there is still huge questions about what actually happened in Salisbury. It did lead to the death of one woman who came into contact with this nerve agent. And of course, there was an attempted assassination of a former KGB double agent. And people have been named as responsible, the operators who are Russian. So I think what shocked me about this was Mr. Putin's comments that it was just a spy story worth nothing more than five kopecks, at which point I did say that I thought a human life was worth more than five kopecks. But it just sounds like we're just completely speaking at odds over this issue. Well, at some point, clearly, there will be some improvement in relations. And I think there have been one or two back-channel contacts with Moscow to suggest as much. But the idea you'd have a restoration of full relations is far from it, not least because there are other outstanding issues where Britain is part of an international coalition which has enforced sanctions over Russia's annexation of Crimea and the stoking of an insurgency in eastern Ukraine. Henry, why do you feel that the president chose to grant this interview now? I mean, it goes without saying that this is obviously something the FT has been looking into and pursuing for years. Since I became bureau chief in September, it's been a real priority of mine. And we went through months and months of negotiations with the Kremlin to make this happen. The timing, of course, is linked to the G20. Mr. Putin was keen to discuss international affairs, to present himself as something of a statesman and There were no limits on what we could or could not ask. There was no hope that they would force us to focus on a certain issue or not. Of course, it's a fool's errand to try to second-guess what the Kremlin was trying to get out of this or what they were hoping to achieve. But I would say this. Mr. Putin's well aware of just how fractured the world is at the moment, how geopolitics has been really turned upside down, certainly by the administration of President Trump, how countries are finding new alliances and new ways of working with each other. And Mr. Putin is very keen to sort of stake Russia's claim to have a role in that. And I think he's keen to speak to international audiences about a new role Russia could play, while also, of course, speaking to those other countries through newspapers like the Financial Times. I think that Mr. Putin's goal was to show that he could engage with a respected international publication and convey the message that Russia was back at the top table. So that was an aim in and of itself. I believe so, but we never want to second-guess the Kremlin. So Lionel, he also seemed very keen to present himself as a strategic thinker, someone who works to bring stability. And he defended Russia's intervention in Syria, for example, and contrasted that with the Western intervention in Iraq and Libya, which brought chaos. Does he have a point there? 
Well, not really. I don't think that he's brought stability to Syria. That civil war has led to more than five million refugees and hundreds of thousands of people killed. He's right, of course, that the Western military interventions in Libya and Iraq also led to hundreds of thousands of refugees and introduced a great deal of instability in the Middle East. And he's certainly correct about that. I think what was really striking was how he believed that he had taken a calculated risk in approving the military mission in Syria and how one of the benefits had been that Russia had essentially got sophisticated target practice. He said, I'm speaking frankly here, which he was very frank, about saying this has been an excellent, unprecedented opportunity for the Russian military. He was, on the other hand, quite touchy about Russia's military ties with the Maduro regime in Venezuela. Why was that? What kind of insight did he give you there? Well, we asked him about, I asked him about the degree to which Russia was propping up the Maduro regime, which, as we know, is responsible for a brutal crackdown against dissenters, and it is a deeply corrupt regime. Mr. Putin was extremely sensitive about the notion that somehow Russian military advisers were embedded in the regime and propping it up. He just cast the role of these people as helping service defence assets, which Russia had sold to Caracas regime. Now, Henry, he also made some comments about the economy and about his aim of increasing productivity through technology. Is that wishful thinking? It's a topic that we've discussed before. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is something that the Russian government, Mr. Putin in particular, have been talking about for years and years, and certainly since international sanctions were first imposed, uh, as Lionel previously said, over Crimea around 2014. You know, Russia still relies on oil and gas to account for around 50% of its economy on various different ways of calculating that. It's difficult for him to talk about these kind of things while also maintaining quite an aggressive stance towards the West. I mean, foreign investment in Russia has really dried up since the sanctions were imposed, sanctions directly related to Russia's activities overseas. And of course, as Lionel was saying previously, liberal values include the rule of law. Not a lot of large technology companies and large foreign investment companies are willing to move into Russia and to put billions down on the ground if they can't trust the rule of law to guarantee those investments. So while Mr. Putin may well want to reduce his reliance on energy exports, on the natural resource industry and diversify towards other sectors such as technology, it is very much wishful thinking. Really, the only sector where that is showing any kind of impact would be the defense sector, which of course is pivoting towards the Middle East and China as it seeks other sales away from Europe. And so for the two of you, for Lionel and Henry, this is obviously quite an experience. I mean, what was your overall impression of the Kremlin and of the man? This is not someone who you get to chat to every day. We've worked for several years to get this interview. Mr. Putin had not done an interview with a British or Western publication in years. And so a lot of thought went into this. There was no quid pro quos. No subjects were off limits. I've been in the Kremlin once before, interviewing President-elect Medvedev back in 2008. This was like nothing else. We were informed before 8 o'clock that the interview would go ahead. We were taken to the Kremlin and then put in a room with tea and sweets and a bit of chocolate. Well, we had a little tour of the room, the cabinet room, where the interview took place just to see how it was arranged. 
with the four statues of the Tsars, the Imperial Tsars, Catherine, Alexander II, the Reformer, Nicholas I, and of course, Peter the Great. And then we were taken back for more coffee and tea and sweets and then taken back in and literally just waited talking to his aides for nearly two hours, standing, and the four or five security guards came in and just took all the seats. And you're not uh, going to argue with them, right? No, I thought about it, and then I looked at the size <laughs> of their necks, and these were not people you'd want to have really have an argument with or even a coffee with necessarily. <laughs> Henry, has it sort of altered how you view the whole machinery having gone through this process? I must say it was quite extraordinary to sit sort of four foot across a table from a man you spend most of your time looking at on television I'm wondering what it's like. He is a man who has a lot of intensity about him. He is a man who's used to filling a room with his presence, and that comes across quite quickly as soon as he enters it. He can be quite charming, can be quite flippant and quite easygoing, but as you can see just from reading the transcript of the interview, there are moments where his seriousness and a little bit of menace sort of flickers quite quickly after you ask him a question he doesn't like. He has a touch of the schoolmaster about him. He can be quite admonishing. And in person, that comes across even more so than when you see him do it on television. He's a man who has got used to power and he enjoys exuding it. And I think when you're with him and when you're listening to him talk, and he talks at you completely, when you're talking to him, you have his entire focus and he has yours. He enjoys the power that comes with that. Mm. My one impression, Katie, was... This is a man, as Henry says, he likes power. He likes to intimidate. He just stares right through you. He looks into your soul. And if you challenge him, he'll hit you, smack you back. So it was really important at the beginning of the interview just to win a certain degree of confidence and respect. He was very respectful to me. I think I got a spanking once for interrupting him. But it was important to cast him as an elder statesman, which, by the way, he is. He's been around as de facto ruler of Russia for nearly 20 years. Well, it's one to tell the grandkids, isn't it? Thanks both very much. That was Katie Martin talking to Lionel Barber, FT editor, and Henry Foy, our Moscow bureau chief. And we'll put a link to a transcript of the interview in our show notes. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, if you missed our recent episodes on noise pollution, the departure of Apple's chief designer, Johnny Ive, or recent moves to make farming more eco-friendly, you can find them on all the usual podcast platforms. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.